You're listening to the Virgin Radio Pridecast. This is Virgin Radio Pride. The next program may contain material that is distressing and listener discretion is advised. Steve Daniel with you tonight on my Pride playlist, uh, my special guest on Virgin Radio Pride. I'm joined by LGBTQ plus campaigner, human rights campaigner, the man who's shaken up the establishment more times than I can remember. Peter Tatchell, it is so lovely to meet you. It's great to meet you, Steve. Thank you so much for coming in. Um, By the way, I've seen the Netflix documentary three times now. There's so much you've done in your life. Um, It's incredible. Well, Hating Peter Tatchell on Netflix, it does summarise a snapshot of my (laughs) five-plus decades of campaigning. It's only a snapshot, but it it gives a good feel about the things that I've done. We've got so much to talk about in the next hour, so uh, should we do this? Absolutely. Should we we'll start with the first? What's the track that you've got right at the top? Down by the Riverside by Sister Rosetta Tharp. She was a great female black jazz musician, guitarist, uh, from the 1930s, 40s and 50s. Uh, not much known now, but a real women's music pioneer. And this particular song is an anti-war song, mm. um, particularly to challenge the move to war, to say that there's got to be better ways of solving problems than through war. So it's got a great message and it's a great catchy tune as well. And how did you first learn about this artist? When did you first, you know, discover her? Well, I've got a friend in America, uh, Tony Halbert, who's one of the great uh, producers of gospel and soul music in the 50s, 60s, 70s. And um, he alerted me to her and said, you must listen to this woman. She was such a pioneer. She's forgotten now, but you've got to remember her name. And she was a great, of course, a great supporter of the black civil rights movement as well. And she used her music as a voice for black civil rights. It's very, very powerful, isn't it? Very powerful. Those vocals are fantastic. It was a great start. This next cho- uh, tune by Holly Johnson. I've got so much to ask you about this next one. Do you, do you know Holly Johnson? Have you met him before? I do indeed. You know, he's, uh, he's a friend of mine. Um, he has been a great supporter of LGBT plus rights. Uh, he worked with me and other members of Outrage in the early 1990s when we were challenging anti-LGBT plus laws. Mm-hmm. And this song has a particular resonance, apart from the fact that it, it speaks for itself. It's the, beautiful, the isn't it? The power of love, you know, the power of love to overcome hate, the power of love to triumph in the end. Uh, the fact that, you know, no amount of tyranny and injustice can, in the long term, overcome love. Um, but this song was particularly important because he'd just released it at the time of the April Soho bombings in 1999, uh, when three people were killed, when a neo-Nazi terrorist planted a bomb in the Admiral Duncan pub. Mm -hmm. And the week afterwards, Outrage had a memorial event outside the pub uh, where many people spoke, but we played this song. Wow. And, you know... Half the crowd was in tears, mm. and quite rightly so. That was uh, such a shocking, shocking event. The, the strange thing, you mentioned that event. Am I right in thinking that, I think 
one or two of the people who died were actually straight in that in that attack on the Admiral Duncan, and it was just such a there was such an awful uh, feeling in London and around the UK that you know the, the next attack could take could, could actually target our community over over those weeks. It was uh, what do you remember about that time? Well, it's very painful for me personally because um, after the first bombing uh, in uh, Brixton. Mm. Um, I was concerned, you know, the black, strong black community area. I was concerned it may have been a racist attack. When the second bomb came and hit the Asian and Muslim community in East London in Brick Lane, mm. I was very convinced that this was probably a neo-Nazi terrorist. And I feared that the gay and Jewish communities would be next. So you had an inkling. Absolutely. And I remember making a public statement to that effect. And I was rubbish. They said, you're just scaremongering. There's, there's nothing to it. It won't affect us. And I can remember going to some gay bars and clubs with my outraged colleagues and urging them to, um, you know, put up warning signs uh, about uh, suspicious packages and to start door checks. And half the bars just dismissed and joked. And they said, that's your nonsense. You know, we're not going to do that. Um, the police were equally awful. They just said, I was... A, I was, I was making a fuss over nothing, nothing. They said there was no evidence to suggest that this person would strike again or mm -hmm. these people would strike again. Uh, they were incredibly dismissive. So when this bomb did go off in Soho, uh, my heart just sank mm. because if what Iron Outrage had been saying was listened to, then I suspect that perhaps uh, maybe there would have been door checks and that bombing would not have been successful. Um, three people's lives might have been saved and 70 or more other people would have been uh, saved from life-threatening, damaging Im injuries. Mm -hmm. It really highlights the fact that we've made huge gains in the LGBT plus community, but these gains are not you know, set in stone. You know? Um, you know, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. And I always say to people, look, you know, um, remember that in 1930, Berlin was the gay capital of the world. There were gay bars and clubs, gay newspapers, mm. gay sporting and cultural associations. Um, LGBT plus people flocked to Berlin from all over the world as a haven, as a safe space. Yet just three years later, Hitler came to power and the first gay and bisexual men were being carted off um, to concentration camps by the end of the year. All the gay bars were shut down. All the newspapers and cultural and sporting organisations were disbanded. Um, it just shows that you can't take anything for granted. Now, I can't foresee how that might happen in the future. Mm. But who can tell what will happen in 20 or 30 years' time? Yeah. Yeah, we've got to be vigilant. We must not take the gains we've won for granted. When this song came out, as certainly when he was a huge star, when Frankie Goes to Hollywood were just massive and having records banned, we're talking in the 80s. And actually, Graham Norton on this show last week was talking about that precise time he picked that very song. What do you, what's your thoughts on uh, the impact of HIV and AIDS on the community in the 80s. And where were, where were we at just before that crisis happened? Well, before AIDS hit, uh, there's no doubt that um, 
we were making gains, not in terms of legislation, but in terms of public opinion. It was slowly and gradually shifting in our favour. Mm. Um, we were getting increasing support from Labour-controlled local authorities who were funding LGBT plus groups and also providing meeting places uh, for those groups to hold their events. Um, what AIDS did was really put all that into reverse. Suddenly, public attitudes hardened so that uh, from 1983 to 1987, there was a huge increase in public hostility towards uh, gay and bisexual men in particular. Um, you know, in 1987, the number of people who believed that homosexuality was mostly always wrong hit 75 percent, mm. 75 percent. Wow. wow. And it, it also coincided with a massive increase in arrests. There were more police raids on gay cruising areas, um, pubs, bars, clubs, uh, saunas, uh, bookshops. Um, there were also a huge rise in the number of gay and bisexual men uh, violently assaulted and murdered. You know, between 1986 and 1991, I identified from local newspaper reports at least 51 men who were murdered in circumstances that pointed to a homophobic motive. You know, these were men who were, for the most part, not robbed, but simply stabbed with incredible ferocity. This was clear evidence of a homophobic motive, yet the police were more interested in arresting us than in protecting us against this queer bashing violence. So when the AIDS epidemic began, you know, way back in the 80s, how did you see that on a personal level affecting the gay scene in London? The AIDS pandemic was, it was like living through a war. Yeah. Um, outside of a war, uh, you don't have so many young men in their prime dying. And that's what was happening in the early stages, well, for the first decade of the AIDS pandemic. Mm. Um, you know, I would go to nightclubs and I'd suddenly find that people I knew and chatted with every week weren't there anymore. You know, Just like that. that? They were dying or dead. And that was incredibly painful. You know, the, a lot of these people I knew personally and counted them as my friends and suddenly they weren't there anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, in the early days of the pandemic, when we didn't know what was causing AIDS, of course, there was a great deal of fear. But fairly early on, we reasoned that it was probably sexually transmitted. And so myself and many others uh, began to promote the idea of safer sex. Um, and of course, organizations like the Terence Higgins Trust were set up. Mm -hmm. But in the early days, the government gave very little support very little support. It was only when the first heterosexual person was, uh, was, was died of HIV that suddenly the Conservative government that Margaret Thatcher set up and began to take notice. Mm -hmm. um, and that was just profoundly distressing to think that while we queers were dying, the government really didn't care. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it is thanks to organisations like the Terence Higgins Trust, uh, gay men fighting AIDS, uh, Frontliners, the organization for people living with HIV and AIDS. It's thanks that there was the support, the education, the awareness, um, and that saved many thousands of lives. And it also, of course, uh, gay people living with the virus 
the emotional and, and physical and psychological support that they so desperately needed. But government support was a long time coming. It sounds chaotic as much as it does frightening and we're going to come on to it. there's so much about the 80s decade especially after watching the um the documentary on netflix we've got so much to talk about but let's go on to our next track uh, and we will revisit the 80s but so tell me about this song it's sam cook isn't it yeah that's right uh, the track is called change is gonna come mm, beautiful it's really an anthem for the black civil rights movement in america but i think the principles or the ideas apply to any movement for social justice and equality. Yeah. Um, so I took this song as not only applying to black communities, but also to the LGBT plus community as well. And of course, women and, and others who are marginalized and disadvantaged by the system. Um, it's, it's a 1960s track, um, beautifully sung, um, real emotion. And that emotion was very reflective of the state of mind of black communities in America as they were battling against segregation in the Deep South and against voter suppression uh, also in the Deep South. Um, for me, it was had a special uh, relevance because the first ever sort of political awareness that I can remember was in 1963 when I was 11 years old. Mm. Um, a white racist group bombed a black church in Birmingham, Alabama in the United States, killing four young girls in church on a Sunday morning. Uh, these were young girls about my own age. Mm. And when I heard about this, I was so horrified. And I thought, how could anyone kill another human being, let alone someone just because they had a different skin color, and let alone four young girls in church on Sunday? So that prompted my interest in and inspiration by the black civil rights movement led by Dr. Martin Luther King. Um, I followed avidly and passionately supported their struggle for black freedom. When I was 17 and realized I was gay and decided I want to fight for LGBT plus rights, I was living in my hometown of Melbourne, Australia. Mm. Uh, there were no gay organizations there no campaign groups, no helplines, no counselling services, absolutely nothing. You must have felt so alone. I did. I mean, how did you feel? Well, I, I, I felt alone and I didn't know what to do. I, I knew I wanted to do something. Mm. You know, I I'd, I'd hadn't heard about the Stonewall riots, but I had heard about a subsequent uh, march through New York by the newly formed Gay Liberation Front. This was late 1969, probably October or September. Mm. Um, and I immediately thought, wow, I want to be part of that. That's what we need here in Melbourne and Australia. And indeed, we need it all across the world. Yes. Because uh, I've never had this focus on, you know, where I'm living. I always, always think internationally, you know, queer freedom is a global struggle. So there being no organizations in Melbourne, I thought, well, how can I do it? Where, where can I, what, what's my model going to be? So I looked to the black civil rights movement as the template of how to do activism. Wow, okay. And um, I can remember reasoning in my 17-year-old mind, if black people are an oppressed minority and deserve justice, and they are, then so too are LGBT plus people. Mm -hmm. So I conceived the idea of 
LGBT plus people as an oppressed minority and that we had a legitimate claim for our liberation. And that's really got, got me going. Yeah, so amazing. this song by Sam Cooke was a really, it segued exactly into my mindset at that time. Peter, while we're on th- this topic, I wanted to ask you, in what ways do you think the LGBTQ plus experience is different? Well, both different or perhaps even more difficult for minority communities. You know, we've got to recognise that we're, we're not all equally in this. You know, mm. some members of our community, it's much more difficult to come out. It's much more difficult to find love and acceptance. Yeah. And a lot of people end up, you know, being rejected by their families and... That's a big, big trauma for... Huge, isn't it? Particularly for, for black or, you know, South Asian communities where family is so important. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a huge wrench for them. It, it may not be so important for, you know, you know white communities, um, but if you come from a, a community where family is so central to your life and where families are so close-knit, that kind of rejection and, of course, even worse, you know, violence from within, the, within the family... Um, that, 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 that's very, very traumatic. What's your message for somebody who may be listening, experiencing this right now and listening going, you know, that's happened to me. My family have disowned me. I have a problem dealing with myself and figuring out what the next move. What would you, Peter Tatchell, say to somebody like that? Well, there are organisations specifically for you. So in general, there's London Friend, which has a telephone helpline where you can speak to someone mm-hmm. who will be understanding and sympathetic. If you're Muslim, there are two very good Muslim organizations, Iman, I-M-A-A-N, okay. uh, and Hadaya. Um, they both offer support and counseling and also friendship. You know, you'll, you'll meet other gay, lesbian, bisexual, or transgender Muslims there. Yeah. And, and you'll get the support you need. You know, you'll, you'll find a new family. You're not alone. Absolutely. Yeah. And for, um, you know, people in the black community, there's UK Black Pride. Uh, There's also Blackout UK. Um, There's a whole range of different uh, black organizations, Rainbow Noir, uh, Rainbow Black. Um, These are organizations that exist specifically for uh, black communities. Uh, And again, they provide amazing support for black LGBT plus people. And that is where you'll make a whole new set of friends. Yeah. Friends who love you, who care for you, who will nurture and support you. And there's always hope, isn't there? Absolutely. You know, going back to the Eva Cassidy, you know, somewhere over the rainbow, that's exactly what she's saying. No matter how dark and despairing things may seem, there is hope. You will get through this. You will find that rainbow in the end. Wonderful, wonderful. You know, it's, it's so interesting. One of the clips I really loved in the documentary on Netflix is there was a little photo of your school report. I'm not sure where, how old you were, but it said Peter is made to deal with, you know, world issues. I can't remember the exact quote, but basically you, you, you're destined for sorting out campaigning for, you know, people and sorting out world matters. And uh, it really was the case, wasn't it, from very early on? Yeah, I really, I, I, my first campaign was at the age of 15 um, when I um, joined the protests to uh, oppose the hanging of a man who had allegedly shot dead a prison warder during a jail escape. Uh-huh. But at the age of 15, I read a summary of the autopsy report on the dead warder yeah. in the local newspaper. And I worked out 
from where the escaped prisoner was standing when he fired the fatal shot and where the prison warder was standing when he was felled, uh, it would have been almost impossible for him to have fired that bullet because it would have had to almost do a U-turn in midair. Yeah. So I had, I had no proof that he was innocent, but I certainly thought there was a reasonable doubt about his guilt and therefore opposed his hanging. That was my first campaign. Then the same year, uh, 1967, uh, I organised a, um, a, a, a fundraising walk along the beaches in Melbourne to raise funds for Aboriginal kids so they could stay on at school. Mm-hmm. I'd read reports that a lot of Indigenous Aboriginal Black Australians left school at the minimum age, didn't have any qualifications, ended up being unemployed or doing dead-end jobs. I thought to myself, well, if they could stay on at school, you know, rather than having to go out to work to support their families, mm. um, that would, first of all, uplift them, you know, give them an income, but also through them having an income, it would uplift their families and communities. And if they got really good qualifications, that could be something that could really empower black Australians. Yeah. So um, together with four other mates from my school, we, we set up this idea of, of a sponsored long walk. And we, we raised, we, we organised it through all the, all the schools in the southeast region of Melbourne. Um, we raised a huge amount of money for that period. And that scholarship scheme still exists to this day. Oh, incredible. And the documentary touches on your childhood. It seems that you had a bit of a difficult upbringing, didn't you? I mean, very strict family, um, a religious background as well. Do you think that's part of what's kind of driven you to be the activist you are now? Well, it's certainly true that, um, yeah, my father was a lathe operator in an engineering factory. Mm -hmm. Uh, My mother uh, worked as a clerk in a bank. Um, But as soon as she got married, she was sacked. Because in those days, the bank would not allow a married woman to work. Wow. <laughs> Disgusting sexism. Unbelievable. Yeah. So that made me a feminist. When I, when I, <laughs> when I learned about that when I was, when I was older, yeah. that made me a feminist. Um, but also, um, uh, later on, my mother suffered from life-threatening chronic asthma. So mm. a lot of our family income went on medical bills. So even by working-class standards, we were very poor. Mm. And that gave me a sense of injustice. Um, a sense that it wasn't right that we should suffer just because our mother was ill. And, of course, in those days in Australia, there was no equivalent of the National Health Service. It was, you know, pay, pay, pay. Mm. Um, so those are probably other things that spurred me to give me a sense of right and wrong. And- yeah, yeah. It's really fascinating to find out how it all started and who you are, you know, the who Peter Satchel really is. Let's go to the next song. And this is, I mean, wow, Eva Cassidy, um, Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Tell me more before we play this. Well, sadly, Eva Cassidy is no longer with us. She, she died tragically. Um, but she has a great back catalogue of amazing, beautiful songs. Yeah. And probably my favourite is Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Um, it is so touching and moving. Um, you know, it, it, it gives you hope when you listen to those lyrics, you know. Um, it gives you a sense that um, don't despair, you know. Things will be better. Have you had moments where you, you felt that things will just never get better? Or are you one of these people who always lives in hope? Well, I am an eternal optimist and idealist, but I have had plenty of dark moments. Really? And very difficult moments, yeah. I mean, the level of hate mail and even death threats that I've suffered for 50 years has mm. been unbelievable. I, I never would have imagined it would ever be so bad. Um, and obviously, you know, the campaigning I've done on a whole range of issues 
has upset a lot of very powerful, bigoted, tyrannical people. Um, so most of the um, hate mail and death threats have come from homophobes and far-right extremists, but some from Islamists, uh, some from supporters of President Mugabe, who I twice challenged, mm -hmm. um, some from, you know, a whole host of other people. Do you ever get used to that, having a death threat? I've never received a death threat. I could imagine the, the stress of receiving that, but is that something you've, got, you've come to terms with? Well, always you know in your heart that probably it's just a threat. But there's always the worry that one day <laughs> someone might actually carry it through. Yeah. And when they say, we know where you live, and they describe your flat, yeah. that's scary. Are you frightened now? Um, not so much now. I think the worst hate mail and death threats is, is over. But I still get it. I still get them, but nothing on the scale of, of before. Mm. You know, I've been physically violently assaulted over 300 times. 300 times. Fists, baseball bats, bottles, bricks, knives, you name it. Mm. Um, I'm very lucky. The police have actually said to me, you are very lucky to still be alive. Yeah. Uh, there's been more than 50 attacks upon my flat, including three arson attacks and a bullet through my front door. Wow. I mean, there um, are no words just here in this. It's incredible, Yeah, I mean, it's... It? I've you say it so calmly as well. Well, calmly now. But, <laughs> you know, I have suffered from post-traumatic stress disorder right. for That's many years. That's understandable, isn't it? And um, <laughs> my doctor says, you know, it isn't post-traumatic stress disorder. It's ongoing traumatic yeah. stress disorder because it isn't just once or twice it's it's hundreds and hundreds of times this would be a good time to mention because I, I the, the hardest thing to watch the documentary on netflix and it's so it's kind of triggering for, for me to watch what happened with mugabe and you know you got punched you, you were pummeled to the ground weren't you you know I, Beaten I mean, unconscious i mean it's really difficult to watch that. Can you, I mean, hopefully this is not an insensitive question. How did it feel at the time? Did you really feel frightened for your life? I was terrified. I was terrified by, before I even did it. So, but, the, so, so let's just rewind. You got, he was in his car, wasn't he? And you managed to, did you manage to get him out of his car? Tell me how that, that incident happened with Mugabe. Well, there's two separate incidents. Right, okay. One was in London in 1999. Mm -hmm when we ambushed President Mugabe's limousine um, in the street in London near Victoria train station mm. as he left his hotel based on a tip-off that I'd received late at night a couple of days before. Okay. Um, so we ran in front of his limousine, uh, forcing it to halt. <laughs> it screeched to a halt about six inches from our legs. Um, and then one of the guys ran behind the car so couldn't move forward and couldn't move backwards. Right. I ran to the side left door. Amazingly, it was unlocked. Uh, I opened it and before me was the president of wow. Zimbabwe. <laughs> <laughs> I, I gently took his arm with my right hand and then held up my left hand to show that I didn't have a weapon mm. and then said, President Mugabe, you're under arrest on charge of torture. I, I'm now summoning the police. You should have seen the look on his face. Go on. I mean, he is very dark-skinned. Yeah. But a visible ashen pallor came across his face. And his eyes popped. His jaw dropped. He recoiled back in his seat, holding up his hands like a frightened 10-year-old kid. Wow. 
I suspect he thought he was going to be killed. Yes, absolutely. To which I thought, now you know how your victims feel like. Mm. Only we aren't going to kill you. We're going to take you to a court of law and you'll have a chance to defend yourself. Yeah. So we summons the police. <laughs> they were gobsmacked <laughs> that it was the president of Zimbabwe <laughs> in the car. And the car was unlocked. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Wow. <laughs> um, and um, and um, they knocked... We had all the legal papers, the affidavits showing that President Mugabe had authorised the torture of two black journalists mm. in Harare, Zimbabwe. So the legal case was absolutely watertight. But the police just knocked all those papers out of our hands and then proceeded to arrest us. Wow. OK. Meanwhile, President Mugabe was given a police escort to go Christmas shopping at Harrods. Um, the second attempt was in Brussels, where, again, I got a tip off that he was meeting the European Union commissioners. I think this is what I saw in the documentary, yeah. this incident, isn't it? This is where you well, they, were. Both, both were in the film, but, but um, you know, Hayden Peter Tatchell has um, only focuses on the Brussels incident. Yeah. So um, I had a tip off that he was going to be in the Hilton Hotel in Brussels. Um, I couldn't find anybody to come with me. People were too scared or had other commitments. Um, so I lay in wait in the lobby of the hotel. So you were on your own? I was, yeah. Oh, yeah. wow. Gosh. I lay in the wait in the, of the lobby in the hotel, um, knowing he'd have to come out of the hotel because mm. he had another appointment later on that afternoon uh, with the Belgian Prime Minister. So I sort of tried to act, in, act inconspicuous in the... Um, in a boutique selling, you know, ties and scarves. <laughs> but what, what I was doing, I was facing away from the lobby area and looking at the lobby reflected in the plate glass windows. Right. So I could see when his retinue came out of the lift and began proceeding through the lobby. And then I just feigned that I was a dumb, stupid tourist and just walked into the middle of his entourage. But I smiled and beamed and held out my hand as if I was going to shake his hand. Yeah. And that disarmed his bodyguards. They let me through, mm -hmm. thinking I was a well-wisher. And then I got right next to him, or right next by him. I said, President Mugabe, you're under arrest on charges of torture. Yeah. Then I was set upon by his bodyguards, and you see in the film them drag me to the corner and punch me on the skull. It was you, vicious. You can hear the cracks. Yes. I mean, it was just uh, really disturbing to every, watch. Every time I hear those cracks, I wince. Did you black out? Uh, not that stage, No. Uh, but what happened was, while they were beating me up in the corner of the lobby, um, his other bodyguards rushed him into the big revolving door to get him out of the hotel yeah. and then pushed it to try and make it go fast. But it got stuck. <laughs> so they were stuck in the big revolving door. Then they were screaming at the guys beating me up to come and help them. This is like a carry-on movie, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> to unlock the door. So they went to try and unlock the door. <laughs> Meanwhile, I scampered out through the fire escape and confronted President Mugabe on the other side of the revolving door, screaming at the top of my voice, Mugabe is a murderer, Mugabe is a torturer, arrest Mugabe. <laughs> um, eventually, they unlocked the door. Um, he came out. Well, first of all, I was grabbed uh, by Belgian security, Belgian secret police. Right. They slammed me up against the um, plate glass window and held me there. Then Mugabe's people came and um, the two uh, Belgian Secret Service agents then just shrugged and walked away and left me to be beaten up by Mugabe's bodyguards. Uh, I fell to the ground mm. uh, and then they were surrounded by TV crews who demand to know 
who 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 are you? What, yeah. By what and they right? kind of took it in their into their own hands. Yeah, didn't yeah, those journalists. Yeah. So they yeah. really ramped up from that yeah. stage. And uh, so while they were distracted, I scampered between their legs and ran out into the driveway of the hotel just as President Mugabe's limousine was leaving and stood in front of it. Wow. And by this stage, you're bruised, you're battered, yeah, you've yeah, been yeah. punched, pummeled. Yeah. Can, you rem- can you even recall how you were feeling at that moment? Were you just, was it just adrenaline? It was I just, just adrenaline. need to do this. Yeah, wow. just adrenaline. Wow. Um, yeah, I did feel the blows and, and they did hurt, but I just focused on the task in hand. Incredible. So... Um, then when I stood in front of the limousine, then the big hefty bodyguards came out and then I was beaten so badly I was knocked unconscious. Wow. Um, when I woke up, um, I was in the gutter and President Mugabe had sometime previously departed. Mm. Um, now, I never wanted any of that and it's left me with some permanent brain and eye damage. But it was sort of the best thing that could have happened because those images were televised all over the world. Yeah, immediately, a- weren't they? And and people concluded, if President Mugabe is prepared to beat up a peaceful protester or yeah. to have his bodyguards beat up a peaceful protester in broad daylight in a European capital city in front of the world's media, just imagine what he's doing to his own people when no one is watching. So it was a PR disaster for him. Mm. Uh, and it really did help shine a spotlight on his human rights abuses because off the back of that protest, suddenly all these articles and reports appeared about what he was doing yeah, in, yeah. In, in, in Zimbabwe so, itself. So the beatings were worth it? <laughs> well, I mean, that's a strange turn of phrase, isn't it? But it would seem yeah. that, that it did work out in the end. It did. Your message worked out. Okay. Did, yeah. I know this is a really... St- we're going to swerve now into disco. <laughs> there was no great way of changing tacks, but we're going to go to uh, McFadden and Whitehead. This is one of the best disco tracks of them. Well, why do you want this? Well, of course, the title is called um, Ain't No Stopping Us Now. Mm. And among the lyrics, you know, we've been held down so long... We aren't going to be held down anymore. Yeah. Um, again, I think this was written primarily as black artists referring to the black community. But, you know, it translates to all communities who are downtrodden and discriminated against. So um, I see it as a great anthem of protest. And I particularly remember at the Notting Hill Carnival in 1976, just as um, the carnival was about to close down, um, one of the main um, DJs playing under the flyover put this track on and the whole crowd, thousands, went wild. And I think he played it probably six or seven times. <laughs> on a loop. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, was, it was just an <laughs> awesome experience to be there um, and to think that, you know, people really engaged with those lyrics. They really understood that, um, you know, this was an anthem for liberation. Mm. And for me, an anthem for everybody's liberation. Um, so that McFadden and Whitehead tune, that's such a big disco song. I really enjoyed listening to that with you. I've got to ask you, how does how does Peter Tatchell have fun? I mean, do you, do you go out on the clubbing scene? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I used to, probably until the sort of early to mid-1990s. I, I, was, a, I was a clubber. Where probably, would you go? Probably off on the oldest clubber on the dance floor. Yeah. <laughs> um, Mostly to G- uh, what is now G-A-Y, to heaven. Yes. Um, but also other, other, other clubs as well, yeah. And you allowed yourself to just kind of, you know... Yeah. I mean, for, for me, um, 
a night out dancing was a great way to unwind. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, that was my release. So I'd be doing all this intense outrage activism yeah. all the week. And then on a Saturday night, that would be my moment to <laughs> just put all that behind me and just forget about all the campaigns and just dance and meet friends and have a drink. And what's it like for you on the gay scene? Do, do, do fellow gay people come up to you and shake your hand? And, do, you know, what, what, what kind of reception do you get on the scene? Well, I don't go out very much now. No, but I mean, um, when you did. A lot of people felt quite intimidated by me. <laughs> I can remember, um, you know, a couple of times, this is in the 80s. Yeah. Um, two very similar incidents um, at Heaven on the dance floor. Uh, I clocked eyes with Kenny Everett. Right. <laughs> and as soon as he saw me, he had this look of horror on his face and quickly got out of heaven, left completely. I think he must have thought I was going to out him or something. Right. Which, of course, I wasn't going to do. Okay. And a similar thing happened uh, not long later um, with Freddie Mercury. Uh, <laughs> within five minutes, he was out of, out of the club. Um, you know, I, I wasn't outing anybody just because they were in the closet. And, you know, I would have liked to have had a chat with them and, you know, it would have been good to talk with them. But um, they obviously got very nervous and yeah, uh, yeah. left. The, the whole, I mean, you mentioned the outing thing. Um, that's been possibly one of the most controversial aspects, certainly in the documentary of your life. Uh, but that was pretty much, that was kind of like people in religion, wasn't it? Because that was targeted mainly to people in the church, wasn't it? That's right. But it wasn't just people in the church. It was people in public life who were abusing their power and authority to harm other gay people. Mm. So, by not being themselves? Well, no, by supporting homophobia. Right. You know, bishops speaking out against the gay community, bishops voting in the House of Lords against equality, bishops, um, you know, telling their parishioners that they were sinners and must repent. Um, and with regard to MPs, We'd never actually outed any MPs, but we did write to 20 to urge them to not support anti-gay legislation, pointing out that given that they were gay themselves, they must have some understanding of the harm and damage this was doing. Right. Um, now, when we named those 10 bishops in 1994, um, the consequence was that as far as I know, none of them ever said anything or colluded in any way with church homophobia. So that was a win. Right. On top of that, the Archbishop of Canterbury did uh, appoint the Bishop of Manchester, Nigel McCulloch, to liaise with the lesbian gay Christian movement, the first ever official liaison by the church. And soon afterwards, the House of Bishops, which wasn't scheduled to discuss LGBT plus issues, did issue a strong denunciation or condemnation of homophobic discrimination. So that was three wins yeah. out of that action. Mm -hmm. With regard to the MPs, uh, as I said, we didn't out them, we just urged them to come out and to stop supporting anti-gay laws. Um, most of them ended up either absenting themselves from, from uh, gay law reform votes or voting in favour of equality. So again, that was a positive outcome. So it worked. It did work. Yeah. And I, my biggest regret is we didn't use this tactic earlier okay because it would have would have prevented a lot of the hurt and pain that our community suffered so you would have you would have hoped to have done it in the 80s then yeah or the, 70s even the 70s wow okay that's great i mean you've done so much and you've done so much good as well and while we're, we're on the positive vibe i noticed we've got 
Met the next song is M People Search for the Hero. And I remember when this song came out and in the, and it's always this song's always used to kind of conjure up emotion and positivity. Tell me why you've picked this. Well yeah, MPs M People's a great group and I love their music full stop. But this song in particular really has a resonance because it's basically saying that we all have us within us the capacity to do good, mm. to take a stand. Um to be pioneers and trailblazers. Yeah. And the chorus or the music is, is, is just saying, if you don't have it, search for it, find it. It's in there within you. And I think we've often seen this in many of the battles for the LGBT plus community. Um, people who've never before previously joined campaigns and protests have at some moment come to a realization that they have a duty and want to do something. And you know they've searched for the hero inside and they've found it. They've joined the marches, they've lobbied their MPs, they've taken a stand in many different ways. And that's how social change happens. You know, it isn't down to me or anyone else. You know, I've done my bit, but so have many, many others. And it's our collective response. Together we make the change. Mm. So. Searching for that hero and finding it and doing something about it, that is so, so important. It, is, it has been the motor of the LGBT plus freedom struggle over the last five decades. Peter, where are we at now? So here we are, we're coming out of a, you know, a global pandemic and life is slow. We're talking about here in the UK and in London, we're slowly getting back to our normal lives. Are we in a good place, as in the LGBTQ plus community? We've made huge progress. And I want to take this opportunity to pay tribute to and thank everybody, LGBT and straight, mm. who've supported our struggle. Without you, it would not have happened. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. Um, you've helped us arrive at this better place. Uh, let's not forget, in order to keep our spirits going, let's not forget that until 1999, Britain had by volume the largest number of anti-gay laws of any country in the world. Wow. Some of them dating back centuries. Mm -hmm. Yet by 2013, just 14 years later, every one of those laws had been repealed and we got same-sex marriage. Yes. Now, that is the fastest, most successful law reform campaign in British history. So we can all be incredibly proud of that. But of course, there are still battles to fight and win. So we must remember in our schools today, nearly half of all young LGBT plus kids have been victims of bullying because of their sexuality or gender identity. Even now? Yeah. Wow. Nearly half. It's incredible. It's shocking. It? It's appalling. Um, on our streets, um, a fifth of all LGBT plus people in this country have been victims of homophobic, biophobic, or transphobic hate crime in the last 12 months. And stretch it back five years, and it's one third of the entire LGBT plus population. And for older people, maybe they've been victims more than once, maybe two or three times. Mm, mm. So there's still issues to fight. You know, still today, according to the British Social Attitude Survey, 16% uh, of the British public still believe that homosexuality is mostly or always wrong. 16%. That's almost 
one fifth. Why is that? Why why have people got a problem with us? It's a huge question, I know. <laughs> well, there are many different In reasons. I mean, it's why. So, what's the reason for all this hate? A lot of it is religiously motivated. Um, other is is it just fear and prejudice about the unknown. These people have probably never actually met or known a gay person. Mm-hmm. They've got all kinds of presumptions about us, negative, hostile presumptions. Um, but, you know, whatever the reason, we have to fight it, to I overcome wa- it. I always wonder if it's about us or it's whether it's about the act, as in they're thinking sexually. That is probably a lot of, a lot of it, yes. I mean, a lot, a lot of it is down to... Um, a revulsion against sex between two people of the same sex. Mm. And then, of course, there are other issues we still have to fight for, like a ban on conversion therapy. The government promised over three years ago to ban it. It still isn't banned. It's now being kicked into the long grass with the promise of a new consultation. Well, hey, we had a consultation. We don't need another one. Um, you know, Australia, Canada... Lots of lots of places are banning conversion therapy. Why is it taking us so long there on that issue? I think the government is worried about um, creating a fuss for religious people because most of the remaining opposition to a ban on conversion therapy comes from faith communities or sections of faith communities. Mm. Not, not all. It's not all by a long shot. You know, the Church of England has actually condemned conversion therapy to its credit. Yeah. Um, but there are fringe Christian, Jewish and Muslim um, faith organisations that still practice conversion therapy and they want to keep it. Um, another issue we, we still face is um, to secure the reform of the Gender Recognition Act so that trans people don't go through, have to go through all the hoops and hurdles of, you know, getting medical approval and, you know, the long protracted process under the current law. So that needs to change. But sadly, the government is basically ruling that out completely. That's going to take a long, long time, isn't it, if you just well, kind of read in between it, it the lines? It shouldn't, because when the government did a consultation, about three quarters of people said they supported reform of the Gender Recognition Act. Mm. Um, the government set up a consultation. It promised to abide by it, but now it's ignoring it. I mean, it, it's just so, so, so wrong. Um, there's also the issue that many LGBT plus people fleeing persecution in other countries yes, this is come, huge, to, isn't it? come to Britain, uh, and there'll be Afghanis coming to Britain now, mm-hmm. um, and they often get put into asylum detention centres, which are basically prisons by another name. Now, these people are not criminals. They haven't committed a crime, yet they're locked up against their will. Um, those who aren't locked up are forced to live in government-appointed asylum hostels, uh, the standards of which are pretty low, and in some cases appallingly low and substandard, Um, sometimes together with other homophobic refugees from other countries who threaten, abuse, insult, and even sometimes beat them up. Mm. And they're not allowed to work. You know, some of these refugees have skills we need. They're doctors and nurses, Mm. teachers, uh, plumbers, carpenters, um, surveyors, engineers. These are skills we need. Yet the government said they're not allowed to work. They have to live on less than £40 a week for their food, their clothing, their transport, their mobile phone, their toiletries, everything. Mm-hmm. It's impossible. No wonder they are destitute. Yeah. And that's a shameful way to pe- 
treat people who have fled persecution. We've got more music to get into. I, I could speak to you for the whole evening, but you wouldn't want to do that. So we'll just uh, we'll go on to our next song. So much to speak to you about. Um, OK, John Lennon, imagine. Incredible, incredible, incredible. Tell me why you've picked this. This is probably the song that sums me up the best. Go on. <laughs> um, it, it really is a song that voices aspirations for a better world. Yeah. Imagine a world with no religion, mm. no hunger, no war, no poverty. These are great, great, great sentiments put to a beautiful tune. And I just think that um, if what John Lennon sang about all those years ago could, could come to fruition, the world would be a much better place. I don't tire of that song. I've listened to it. Hundreds, if not thousands of times. I was going to ask you, would you still listen to this? When oh, the, absolutely. When the absolutely. chips are down and you've had a bad day, would you still yeah, stick the song? Absolutely. Together with Somewhere Over the Rainbow, <laughs> I would listen to this song because it is so uplifting. Um, it's, it's sort of like the United Nations Universal Declaration of Human Rights put to words and music. Let's get into this next track. Um, this is um, Barbara Zadaggio for Strings and the lovely classical version that goes into the dance version. Now, this came out, in, I think I'm right in saying, just kind of as we tipped into the millennium, 1999, 2000. I remember this. It's a great, it's emotional, but it also makes me want to dance. Tell me more about this. Well, I love Barbara Zadaggio, the classical track. Yeah. It's a beautiful, moving, very, very emotionally powerful piece of music. And what William Orbit has done is start off by reproducing, playing Barbara Zadaggio as it was originally written. Yeah, the classic. And then transforming it into an upbeat, uplifting dance track. I've got to say that I'm a huge, huge fan of electronic dance music and trance music in general. Really? Uh, absolutely. That's Give me some yeah. other artists. So you, what would Peter Tatchell listen to at home if you wanted to feel uplifted? What's on your, like, your home playlist? Well, a, a lot of the stuff, you know, like Derude, Sandstorm, going back to the old days. Yeah. Um, you know, um, Armin Van Buren, you know, he used to be a, a top DJ on Kiss FM mm -hmm. uh, and then became a DJ all over the world. Yeah, he's amazing. Um, so you just kind of like to get lost in the heady. Yeah. yeah, I'm with you. It's amazing stuff. And it's, it's just something about that music, the way it's constructed. I just find it incredibly energising and uplifting. It just, just boosts my spirit. I mean, there's a, there's a new version. I just want to do a plug for uh, Conleth Kane. Um, he's done a great new track called Proud. Um, the original version was like a ballad, yeah. but he's now done an electronic dance music version. Uh, it's on YouTube. I, again, it's in the same sort of genre of electronic dance music. I really recommend you listen to it. It's, okay. it's an amazing track. See, we're getting a music lesson now as well. This is amazing. <laughs> this hour has been incredible. Um, okay, so I must quickly just talk to you about... Um, it's a question I've asked every single guest that's done this show. Um, what does pride mean to you? Well, pride, for me, is a celebration. Mm -hmm. A celebration of LGBT plus life, our culture, and our contribution to society. But it's also a protest. It's also an affirmation of our ongoing demand for respect, dignity and rights. And what I find very sad is the way in which major pride 
parades in big cities like London mm. and Manchester have just become basically a party. They've become too corporate, too commercial, and the human rights has been sidelined. You know, I can't remember in, in, my, in my memory when Pride in London ever had a human rights theme, even though there are so many issues that still face our community. You know, it's had anodyne, you know, vague sort of themes like love wins or, you know, unity and solidarity. Yeah. What does that mean? It means nothing. Um, we need to get back to the roots of Pride, which was, and I was there in 1972. Wow. I helped organise the first ever Pride in Britain with yeah. about 30 other people. Um, it was about a celebration and a protest. And the Reclaim Pride March, which took place in London on the 24th of July, did exactly that. No commercial sponsors, no floats, no corporate funding. In fact, no funding at all. You see, I didn't see much about this. I knew, I knew that it was happening and it existed, but I didn't see it on telly or on the news or anything. That just shows how homophobic our media is. You're right. The, even the Liberal Guardian didn't report it. Right. Certainly not the BBC. Um, you know, it's really shameful about what was an attempt to reclaim pride for the community. This was led by and for LGBT plus community groups uh, with, with, with five clear human rights demands, as pride should be. It was great fun. Everybody said it was a great time. Yeah. So it proves you can have fun and also have a serious message. Right. They go and hand in hand. Absolutely. Mm. You know, the, the two are not mutually exclusive. <clears throat> okay. Um, so, you know, I think it's just just really, really sad that most prides have, have lost the plot. And I think, you know, pride in London is going to have to really radically reform before it can win back community confidence because they say they cancelled the 11th of September because of the COVID regulations. There are no COVID regulations that prohibit outdoor pride parades and I'm very angry that they're using that as an excuse when you know I've asked them produce the COVID regulations they won't right because there are none um, I think they cancel it because well it may be because some of the big sponsors were no longer supporting it maybe um, and it may be because quite a lot of community groups um, decided they wouldn't participate particularly in the wake of the allegations of racism and bullying within the organisation, plus the lack of a human rights focus. Mm -hmm. So, you know, whatever, I'm prepared to say let bygones be bygones, but tr Pride in London has to radically reform if it is to win back community confidence. It cannot go on just like before. Before we get into this final track that you've picked from Diana Ross, I wanted to ask you, how do you feel overall about your achievements as a campaigner over the years, over the decades? I don't dwell much on the past or even the present. I'm just thinking forward to the future. Right. What's the next campaign, the next <laughs> battle, you know? I could see you know, that. How can I, with others, help to make things better for the future? Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I, I suppose, you know, I, I feel I have made a contribution, but it's, it's one among many, you know. Oh, it's massive. Um, it is massive. Well, there are lots of people who have made important, significant, massive contributions. And I think it's our collective effort that's sure, produced sure. the changes. And, you know, all I want to see is more. <laughs> what would you say your biggest achievement has been? Again, I don't really think in those terms. Can I push you? Just one thing that you're most proud of achieving. 
it's really hard. There's so so many things that I've contributed to, but mm. I suppose the outrage campaign against the police harassment of the LGBT plus community, um, you know, that began in 1990. By 1993, the number of gay and bisexual men convicted for consenting adult same-sex behaviour fell by two-thirds. Wow. The biggest, fastest fall ever recorded. And that literally saved thousands of gay and bisexual men. That's quite incredible, isn't it? It it saved thousands of gay and bisexual men from arrest Mm. and the stigma of a criminal conviction and, of course, imprisonment or fines, as the case might have been. So, yeah, I'm proud of that. But we only got those changes. We didn't get through negotiation initially. The police smiled. They met us. They shook our hands. They gave us tea and sandwiches. But they just carried on raids. It's only when we began to, you know, basically picket New Scotland Yard, invade and protest at police stations, um, all those kind of things, those protests, that's what really forced the police back to the negotiating table and produced the changes that led to those positive results. My final question is, what's next? What's the, the, the next big thing on the Peter Tatchell agenda? Well, in terms of LGBT plus rights, uh, obviously it's got to be the Football World Cup in Qatar next year. Mm. I mean, it is absolutely outrageous that Qatar was given the Football World Cup in the first place. As you probably know, there are many allegations that it was given as a result of corruption and bribery. Yeah. Um, you know, Qatar is now saying that it will allow people to wave rainbow flags in the stadium. Right. Well, what about waving rainbow flags 365 days a year? What about repealing the laws in Qatar that can put a gay person in prison? Mm. And indeed, if it's sex between two Muslims, can under Sharia law lead to them being executed? What I've discovered, which is a big, big secret, is that Qatar has secret gay conversion centres where gay people are forced to go uh, in order to make them straight or if they're transgender to uh, convert them to cisgender. Um, You know, this is a big, big, dirty secret. And I just think that, you know, we've got to keep the pressure on Qatar and not only on LGBT plus rights, but also on women's rights and on the rights of migrant and labor, uh, migrant laborers uh, who, who are subjected to very harsh, extreme regulations. And will you be there next year? Will you, will you be going? Um, I have to discuss that with people about what the risks are going to be like. I can see another documentary coming. <laughs> <laughs> well... You know, it's Qatar is not a democracy. No, you know, no, no. People end up in prison there on flimsy charges or even trumped-up charges. Yeah, yeah. And you end up in prison for a very long time. Am I prepared to take that risk? Well, that's something I have to seriously consider. Peter Tatchell, thank you very much. Thank you so much. Can I just say that if anybody's interested, please go to my foundation website to find out more about my campaigns. It's petertatchellfoundation.org in the top right hand corner there's a little button which says join us if you click on that and give us your email address we will send you a weekly bulletin about LGBT plus and other human rights issues some of them very serious but some of them funny and quirky brilliant it costs nothing sign up join us Peter Tatchell thank you so much it's been an absolute honour meeting you tonight